It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In this week's programme, the All Blacks begin life without Sir Graham Henry when they play Ireland in the first of three tests. We talk to Karen Hanlon, who in the space of two years has gone from mountain bike novice to Olympian. We ask her the Black Sticks Olympic hopes and tatters after a 3-0 series loss to South Korea. And the country's oldest registered golfer, 96-year-old Margaret Stevens, decides her time on the greens is over. The All Blacks enter a new era at Eden Park on Saturday night with new coaches, some new players and the moniker of world champions. The best team in the world will need to shake off any post-World Cup hangover when they play Ireland in Auckland. Joe Porter reports. Steve Hansen has named just seven players who started in last year's World Cup final for Saturday's match against Ireland. He says it's a chance to give new players a go. To win test matches you need experience. But we also know that we have to start introducing some younger people into our squad because you just can't keep the same people forever and ever a day. Um, But the more experience you have, the easier it is because you've been there before, you've done it, you understand what it's like, uh, and it makes it easier for these guys. Hansen knows he'll be judged on what happens from now. The 54-test centre Conrad Smith says the pressure to perform is as strong as ever. That's the, the joys of being an all-black, you know, the pressure's on regardless and, and we've talked about that as a team, we, we don't want that to drop, we don't want things to change just because we've put a trophy in the cabinet. You know, we've had 100 years where we uh, haven't needed World Cups to want to prove something on Saturdays and that doesn't change now that we've got it, so we still want to build a part of the legacy, we've got a chance in the, in the next three weeks. There are seven new caps in Hansen's squad with wing Julian Savia, halfback Aaron Smith and lock Brody Retallick to debut this weekend. Fullback Israel Dagg is now the leader of an inexperienced All Blacks back three and he has some advice for the debutants. You don't get many opportunities to wear this black jersey so every time it comes you've got to play as, a, as if it's your last. So next week anyone can take that jersey from you and you know, we're just caretakers of the jersey really. Every time we get that opportunity to wear the jersey we've got to put everything out there and not leave, it, not leave anything out there. You know, represent your country, your family, everyone out there so we've just got to represent New Zealand well. With Saturday night also marking the return of the world's best first five, Dan Carter, the All Blacks are expected to win easily and nothing less will satisfy the demands of the New Zealand rugby public. However, the three-test series will be the Ireland centre Brian O'Driscoll's last in New Zealand and the talismanic captain is desperate to be part of the first Irish side to ever beat the All Blacks. I've managed to tick a lot of boxes along the way with, you know, with the Irish side and, and beating the other Southern Hemisphere nations, obviously beating Australia in the Southern Hemisphere last year. Uh, but this is one that's eluded us. So you know, we've said it for a few years that at some stage in the future, an Irish team is going to beat the All Blacks before the world implodes. We just have to try and make it now rather than you know, waiting for our kids or our kids' kids to see it happen. That's Ireland captain Brian O'Driscoll ending that report from Joe Porter. Now, in 107 years and 24 tests, Ireland's never beaten the All Blacks, but the Irish Times rugby correspondent Jerry Thornley says with two Irish club sides making European rugby's Heineken Cup final, 
there's a quiet confidence among the tourists. When you've got two provinces contesting a first ever All-Irish final, I mean, that's never been done before. It's the kind of, it's normally the preserve of the French and the English to lord it over the rest of Europe like this. Leinster un- undoubtedly the best side in Europe, in, at provincial level, through club level, the best side in Europe. They won the Honey Cup two years in a row, unbeaten in the competition this year, playing a great brand of rugby under a great Kiwi coach, as I've said, and Joe Schmidt, and with a little influence from Eason Asaiwa and Brad Thorne, but like, we'll do 12 Irish qualified players in the starting lineup. And OK, Ulster had big help from their South African infusion and John Afoa who's um, a freak a uh, wonderful player but they still have 10 Irish qualified players they're starting to see it. Look at 23 Irish qualified players in the Heineken Cup final come kickoff. so it has to help it means they've been going they've been kept going and the other thing as well you've got to understand is the Irish players are treated like Persian cats like they are well looked after I did the stats on that and I don't think one Irish player despite starting at the beginning of last August has played 28 games for province and country they are well rested they're well looked after and the only problem is there's a few unfortunately there's a few key injuries How important is Talisman Brian O'Driscoll? Well, he's huge, all the more so with Nat O'Connell there. You see, you know, Ireland are missing Mike Ross, the tight-headed locks the scrum. They're missing Paul O'Connell, the leader, who's their main ball winner. And they're missing Stephen Ferris, who is, in many ways, the defensive leader of the team, certainly around the fringes and up front. So, had O'Driscoll not been here, one would perish thought, they're like the twin totems of the team. You've got to have at least one of them to have a snowball's chance at hell of beating the All Blacks here down here. Um, he's a freak, he's as well. He is, I'd safely say the most gifted, talented, remarkable sportsman Ireland has ever produced, not just rugby player. I mean, to come back from his latest de- neck stroke disc operation, six months, almost bang on schedule, and reproduce some blindingly good rugby. And the bad news for you guys is it means that he's coming out here relatively well rested. He's only played about 15 games all season. He's hungry and enthusiastic and excited about wearing the green again. And when he is on the pitch, those around him in green belief. What's the feeling like within the Irish camp? Is there a quiet confidence that this could be the opportunity to knock that monkey off the back? I think there is a quiet confidence mixed with a, a, a stark realisation that in 107 years and 24 games of trying, no Irish team has ever done this before. But that represents a great opportunity. They can swing from the hip to degree um, and I think yeah I think they're, they're despite this being an 11 month season they're very focused and they're fresh like I said just a pity that they're missing three key, three key forwards and the All Blacks World Cup hangover do you think that will affect them at all had it been the exact same team yes but it isn't there's only seven of the starting lineup I think from the World Cup the new coach um, your four of your five franchises occupy the top eight place in Super 14 four of your top of your five franchises scored bonus points uh, attacking bonus points last week I think everybody in the back line bar Aaron Smith and Israel Dagg was on the score sheet um, Reslick looks seriously good like you know potentially Ian Jones of the future um, your scrum half you're having a little bit of a problem there and suddenly you've got a whole new conveyor belt of brilliant in scrum halves and Smith's selection would seem to suggest you're going to try and play that very high tempo Super 15 game rugby um, and suddenly Will, Bill Williams is playing out of his skin playing better rugby never so no unfortunately I don't see a hang over there how important was that win over Australia last year in the World Cup as a watershed moment, particularly at Eden Park, the fortress of the All Blacks? Well, yeah, I was looking at your All Blacks record. It's 28 games in a row going back to 1994. Jean-Luc Saturny, try from the end of the earth. <laughs> yeah, I, but, you know, the key for Ireland is staying within the score for as long as possible and put a shred of doubt in the All Blacks' minds. And I think it is significant because Ireland, you've got to understand, Ireland had never beaten the Southern Hemisphere team in the Southern Hemisphere since 1979 when Ollie Campbell was pulling the strings. So 
as a one-off win. It wasn't bigger than winning the Grand Slam, but as a one-off win, it was the biggest win in the professional era for sure by any Irish rugby team. And it does give them a few good little memories of Eden Park. And by all accounts, one of the sad consequences of the Irish economy going um, pear-shaped is that there's quite a diaspora living here in New Zealand and Australia and elsewhere. And we might get a nice big-sized Blarney army at the ground as well, which would help too. Certainly seemed like there was a fair few green shirts in that mm. game at Eden Park last year. Yeah, I'd say a few of them might have been Kiwis. <laughs> um, adopting Ireland for the night, it was amazing. You know, you, For the next few days, if you went anywhere with an Irish accent, you were greeted like <laughs> a hero, whether you'd played or not. It was just That was one of the most popular victories of the World Cup, it seemed here. But I think like um, there will be a huge contingent, like I said, albeit this time the Kiwis won't be supporting us. Do you think they'll take a similar game plan to that day to try and disrupt around the breakdown and, and break up the flow of this All Blacks team that does like to create space and look to attack? Well, Ireland's defence is generally very good, you know, and uh, they they mix and match the kind of a drift and a, an aggressive fast-up defence very well. They are missing Donegal O'Callaghan, who's particularly effective with the choke tackles that forced so many turnovers against the Aussies that night. But it is something they they perfected very well over the years, and I think. Yeah, they, um, O'Brien is a good breakdown player. O'Driscoll's like an auxiliary flanker at the breakdown. Rory Best is very good at winning turnovers. Um, yeah, of course that's part of the game. But I'm sure, I'm sure Richie McCall might try and do something similar, mightn't he? And I'm sure he might even flirt slightly with the um, with the, the laws of the game slightly. And what about Brad Thorne? Have the Irish picked the brain of him at all to perhaps try and pinpoint some potential weaknesses within the All Blacks frame of mind and within the All Blacks style of play? Well, you know, he does have the most remarkable career in the history of rugby union, rugby league combined, bar none. It is the most remarkable rugby career ever. And here he is, the oldest man to play in a World Cup final, the oldest man to play in a Heineken final, the oldest man to win both. And at the same year, to, to all, every, I mean, just complete though. So they were, they were very impressed by him. He was the first man on the training ground at every training session. He demanded high standards. He's a, he is another freak in the gym. They all just looked on in awe at that. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of them would have really listened and learned. And the great thing about him was that he's such a pro, he really bought into the whole Leinster thing. And I interviewed him, and he did say, you know, I shouldn't be saying this because I'm a Kiwi, but I, looked, I look around at the Leinster, the Talbot here, and I look at Stephen Ferris up in Ulster and players down in Munster, and I think, how come they've never beaten the, the All Blacks in over 100 years? It, it can't be just ability, it's got to be a mental thing. But they go down there and they really believe they can be, beat the All Blacks, as he said himself, it could be very interesting. It seems to be the difference between a side like France, who can come down here and win games seemingly at ease at points and times, and then go and drop and lose by 50 the next week, whereas Ireland have been so much more consistent, but like you say, perhaps it is a mental block. Uh, we've taken a few thumpings as well over the years as well, you know. Um, yeah, it's funny the way nations, some nations get in the heads of other nations. The French get inside the Kiwi heads, you know. There they are, the last team to win in Eden Park with a drive me into the earth. Perhaps it's because of that, that drive me into the earth. Sow the seeds of doubts and generations of all blacks for years and years to come. By the same token, every Irish player grew up watching the All Blacks beat Ireland and knowing that no Irish team has ever beaten the All Blacks so that gives you a little bit of baggage as well and of course the other bloody annoying thing about it as well is it means that every All Black who plays against Ireland is fearful of becoming the first in history and it's fair to say so not in my watch This week's game what's your prediction? Uh, if if Ross and Ferris and O'Connell had been here, I would have really given Ireland a shot at this because um, the, the All Blacks haven't been a couple of weeks in camp. They've only been a few days, a week. Um, damn it, I'd love to see Ireland win, but I'm not going to. No, I, I would realistically, I think that the All Blacks should win by 7 to 10, 12 points, something in that ballpark, one or two scores. But I do think Ireland, if the scrum goes well, will uh, rattle the All Blacks' cage. It's Irish Times rugby correspondent Jerry Thornley talking to Joe Porter.
The 32-year-old mother of two, Karen Hanlon, has realised a short-held dream after being selected to represent New Zealand in mountain biking at the London Olympics. Hanlon, along with three BMX riders, Sarah Walker, Mark Willis and Kurt Pickard, have been added to the cycling squad. Hanlon only took up the sport two years ago after previously competing in long-distance mountain running and multi-sport events. The Fakatani rider told Barry Guy that while making the Olympic bike team is something she hadn't thought of until recently, she's always wanted to compete at the very top. It was always a dream as a child to go to the Olympics. Um, I was always involved in sport, especially running, but no, never, never mountain biking. Not until I um, took up the sport of multi-sport about uh, two years ago and really enjoyed it and then sort of thought I'd have a go and see how I'd go on mountain biking and... Yeah, took to it, then took on the national season last year and started travelling and, yeah, I realised it was an Olympic uh, sport and so I thought I'd give it everything and see if I could have a go at it. And fortunately for me, it's, yeah, it's paid off and I'm just absolutely excited about it and the opportunity to represent New Zealand. So is yeah. uh, was mountain biking, what, just a bit easier on the body or more fun? Oh, probably both, actually. Definitely more fun. De- well, well, I still love running, but... Um, yeah, I, I hadn't didn't have too many injuries in running, so I was quite lucky. But um, yeah, just I, I like the challenge of something different, something new, and um, it's exciting. Like you meet really neat people, and you do some pretty amazing things on the bike that I never dreamt I would do. So no, it's, it, it keeps me um, keeps me entertained, and I'm pretty addicted to it at the moment. And a couple of kids under your belt, so doing anything yeah. now is just uh, a cinch, I imagine. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely yeah. Yeah, no, they they keep me um, busy at home, and no, it's it's quite nice to have a bit of a balance like that with the family life and the sport, and I work too, so it's yeah, it, it kind of all works in, and um, yeah, they it's nice to come home. The kids sort of uh, don't really know what I'm up to out there biking, but one day hopefully they'll appreciate what I do. It, it's a, it's quite a commitment though. I mean, the work uh, home balance all sort of works out okay for you. Yeah, yeah, I have amazing support. Uh, my husband's great. He's um, he's a teacher, so uh, straight after work, and that I usually get to bike home. He'll pick the kids up, so that's when I do most of my training. And yeah, supportive work environment too. That you know, sort of said if um, if I need to do anything, they'll support me. So yeah, it, it kind of works out. It's definitely balancing though, like weekends and stuff. I'm up pretty early getting my training sessions in, so I've got time with the family at home. And yeah, the travelling's pretty tricky too when you spend sort of up to six weeks away from two young kids and yeah but it's yeah uh, it's a dream so I want to taste it and I'm getting a bit older and uh, you know this is my one opportunity and I want to make the most of it now. So picking up the sport and really getting into it in less than two years I mean you've obviously uh, got something or you've gone you know dive straight into it um, to, to get uh, selected for the Olympics after you know what is a relatively short period of time. My background in running, um, especially mountain running, was a huge asset. Uh, as soon as I did start the mountain biking, I was always strong on the uphill climbs, and that's a big part of the cross-country racing. It's very physically demanding, so um, I had that behind me in the endurance side from um, uh, multi-sport and that too, like our races are from, you know, anything from an hour and a half to an hour 45. So that that was always my biggest strength. But, yeah, learning the technical downhills um, was pretty scary, I think. Like, when you're younger, you sort of just throw yourself off banks and that and don't think too much about it. But, yeah, at 31, learning, <laughs> learning it and, um, yeah, telling your brain that it's going to be okay or or just to do it, it's, yeah, it's definitely a little bit trickier. But, yeah, I, I enjoy it. Like, I've always enjoyed sort of um, real thrill 
thrill-seeking stuff. So, yeah, I think I think that's all part and parcel, and it's one of the things that draws me to the sport even more. Is once I do something once, I I know I can do it. So I, I want to try something a little bit trickier, and yeah, so far so good. So, what level did you get to in mountain running? Um, I I never did really sort of um, national stuff, but. Um, I got some really good results in a lot of the long-distance stuff, like I've had wins in the GOAT, um, Toys Challenge, Kawika Challenge, and Cape Brett Challenge, like, like really long endurance stuff. So, yeah, sort of one of those people I'd just go out and enjoyed being out in different places running long distance. But I did try um, sort of uh, the nationals once in mountain running, but, yeah, I think it was a bit of a shorter race for me, and, yeah, by the time I sort of got into it the race was over so no great results there but yeah on a bigger scale I sort of the longer distance stuff definitely suited me. So who has helped you with all the technical things? My husband used to do a lot of well he's one of the kids that grew up on a BMX bike so he taught me some basic skills but probably Gabby Malloy from Rotorua and Chris Milden and um, they do the mountain bike skills clinics and yeah they've shown me a lot of stuff Sadie Park, uh, Winyard Parker from Auckland and yeah, just heaps of the young kids in the sport, um, especially all the under-19, under-23-year-old guys, they, they always let me ride with them and show me different lines and, yeah, teach, teach me how to do stuff that I think they learnt as you know, 9- or 10-year-old boys. So no, it's, I've just had heaps of support within the sport. There seems to be quite a good setup in New Zealand. I mean, there's that great park in Rotorua and, you know, we've had a bit of history in the event here. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, I'm lucky I only live an hour from the Redwoods over there, so um, it's all accessible, and even here in Whakatane, um, they've, you know, there's some great trails, uh, trails that Kim Vandera has built, and Bill Clark, so I get to get out and, yeah, ride them, I just go across the road and I'm straight into a training session, so it does make it easy, and yeah, I got Dad to build me some um, sort of jumps and uh drop-offs and things on his farm that I can go and just learn on. So, yeah, it just gives me that confidence in a safe environment before I sort of put myself onto a World Cup track. Um, and you've been in quite a battle with uh, Rosara Joseph uh, for the last sort of year, I suppose, and there's a bit of debate as to who might get in or if you'd both get in, and then unfortunately she uh, broke her wrist. Yeah, no, we've definitely been sort of um, aiming for the same goal. We've both been challenging each other and... Um, it's actually, I think for me, definitely it's been great to have someone of her level in New Zealand to race and put myself up against. And then, yeah, on the world stage, um, we rode some pretty challenging tracks, so very disappointing for her to break her wrist. Um, the, the track that she did it on, I actually didn't finish the same race in the World Cup, so it was a pretty technical track. And, yeah, we, we tried initially to maybe get enough points to send two riders to the Olympics, but, um, yeah, just... The, the amount of riders and the level they're at in the World Cup races kind of limited us. So, yeah, unfortunately, one rider only got the spot. And, but I'm just grateful that, that it was me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really wrapped and I want to give it everything that I can. What's the uh, London course like and is it to your liking? Um, it's Well, I had a look at it last year and got to ride on it. And um, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Like, it's definitely going to be a fast race. And there's some really technical rocky sections that I'm going to sort of work, I spend a lot of time working on. And, um, yeah, not, not majorly long climbs, which usually favours me. Uh, it's sort of, there's heaps, but a lot uh, smaller ones. Um, so I won't, I never raced on it and I heard it was fast and it did race well. So I guess I'll find out once I get there and, yeah, I'm, no matter what the course is, I'm, I'm going to give it 100% anyway. So I've got a specific training program to uh, make myself ready for that 
particular track. Is the family going to get to see you there? Oh, that would be great. Oh, we're, at the moment, we'll definitely um, find a way to get Mark over there, my husband, and mum and dad are going to come too, and I've got um, uh, sort of uh, aunties and uncles and workmates and that that are going to support me, but... Yeah, I might, I might have to maybe try in New Zealand, ring them up and see if they can help me out maybe to get the kids over, because um, that would be great. But, yeah, ultimately it's a huge cost, and um, as long as we can get Mark there first, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. That's Fakatane rider Karen Hanlon, who will be New Zealand's sole mountain bike representative at the London Olympics, talking to Barry Guy. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. The New Zealand women's hockey team will be coming home winless from South Korea despite dominating much of their third and final test. The Black Sticks led 3-1 with just four minutes to play before conceding three goals to lose 4-3. Despite losing the series 3-0, coach Mark Hager told Denise Garland it's not all doom and gloom ahead of the London Olympics. Look, I thought we played pretty well until the last four minutes. Um, uh, we we basically didn't defend very well at all and, and conceded some corners. Um, uh, there was a couple of dubious umpiring decisions that went against us, but it was probably our own fault that, that the ball got down there. We weren't clinical enough up front again to hold possession. So, um, but we, yeah, we were three one up and cruising and doing okay. And in the last five minutes, they scored three goals to make it four three. So that's that's probably the biggest disappointment about the whole day. So obviously, because you guys were ahead uh, for for most of the game, there are there were some improvements on the first two matches. Oh yeah, look, I think there's huge improvement. We were very very good for obviously. 65 minutes of the game, but then you got to learn to win from there and not not lose once you're three one up. That's that's the disappointing thing I think is um, you know you still got to defend your corners properly. You still can't give them easy goal shots. Um, as I said, there was a really dubious decision that the ball hit one of their feet and fell to one of their players in the circle who hit it in. Um, uh, and unfortunately, you know we don't bring our own, own umpires. So, uh, but again, it was our own fault because we didn't. We didn't protect the ball well enough or, you know, look after it. Um, in, in those sort of games, you've got to make sure that you're so clinical with the ball so, you know, you don't bring umpires into into the game, particularly at the end of games when it's nice and tight and close. You would have expected to perform better leading into the Olympics? Oh, look, I think we're still a long way off. Um, uh, in the end, who cares how you perform leading into the Olympics? It's um, it, it, what you what you counted on is your results at the Olympics, so... Uh, you know, we, we we didn't have Katie Glenn today playing. She's injured, and we also uh, Kayla Sharlin's back home as well. So you know, we've got two very experienced players to come back into the group. And Korea are a good side. You know, we take no credit away from them. They're they're a tough opposition. So um, uh, you know, we just we're just inconsistent at the moment. So um, you know, if we can fix up a couple of little things, and you know, we'll win games. And and I think that's the real key for us. But. Uh, you know, we've still got time to, to fix up and, you know, we get home next week and the the, the team's named. Um, yep, so from there we, you know, we pick our 16 and, and then we can start fine-tuning from there. What can you take from this three-match series against Korea uh, leading into the Olympics? Uh, to be more consistent, I think. Uh, we've got to be better defensively when, you know, in, in the China series we only conceded a goal a game. Here we conceded... 11 goals in three games um, and that's us of old you know we haven't done that for a long time um, and I think that's the disappointing thing is is you know we, we're conceding soft goals particularly on counter-attacks and um, you know some of our young players have to learn very very quickly without the leadership of people like Kayla Charland um, we do tend to struggle at times in the middle of the pitch and 
she organises very well on the pitch and unfortunately for some of our young ones they just ball watch or don't treasure the ball well enough and um, uh, or don't treasure the position or, or you know at times don't value uh, the crucial parts of the game um, so you know we, we turn over and that's when we get hurt. So obviously, as you said, you're heading back to New Zealand uh, before, obviously, the Olympics. What will be the key areas that, that you guys need to work on ahead of uh, that big uh, event? I mean, you could say our goal shooting, but we still, we converted, uh, we, we scored, I think, three, six, eight, eight or nine goals um, in the three games here. Um, and we've got a, another four in China. So, you know, we, we always want to work on our attack, but you got you got to look at our defence and say, well, well, what's going on here? We need to be better. Um, you know, again, it's, it's mainly composure on the ball. When we win it, we don't we don't treasure it on transition into attack, and so we'll turn it over and give it straight back to the opposition. And, and you know, that's where we've got to really value the ball more and and learn to uh, counter attack and, and hurt the opposition versus the other way. That's Blacksticks hockey coach Mark Hager talking to Denise Garland. The oldest registered golfer in the country, 96-year-old Margaret Stevens, has announced her retirement from the sport. Mrs Stevens has played for the Rafferty Club in Canterbury for the past 63 years. She says a recent mild heart attack has forced her to give up her weekly round. I started in 1948. A friend played golf. And I played tennis for goodness knows how long. I was still playing tennis and playing golf, but they overlapped too much. So, of course, tennis got scrapped, and I've been on the golf ever since. But, of course, I was working in those days, and uh, we only played on a Sunday. We played next foursomes one Saturday in the month. Otherwise, it was just Sunday. And, of course, it never rained on the golf course in those days. Is that looking back through rose-coloured spectacles, is it? <laughs> yes, <laughs> certainly. <laughs> so it was the opportunity to play and socialise with, with friends? Yes, it was, a, it was a very friendly club. And Saturday nights we played cards and played bowls and all sorts of funny little things, you know. It was good fun. You must have seen a few changes over, over that period. What... What sticks out in your memory as some of the, the biggest changes on the golf course and in the sport? Well, combining the men and women, I think really thinks a very good idea. I played in the nine-hole inter-club this year, and there were three teams that were four men. It was a bit hard to play against them. I'm not very keen on that. And, and what about the clubs? Did, did they change much? Are you able to hit the ball further with newer clubs than what you used to be able to? Yes. I'm still hitting quite a long ball even now. Nothing like as long as I used to. What's kept you involved in golf for so long? Well, I enjoyed the exercise. Friendship. You know, I've known people for years. Has the club changed much over that time? Yes, it has considerably. With it used to be a real social club, but it um, doesn't seem to be now. I suppose clubs and club sports over the, or during that time when you maybe first started playing, they were much more the focus of a community, weren't they? Yes, they were. Mm. I'm just too old to be uh, interested in things I used to be. Never go up to the 19th now. That's not the club's fault, really, because... Uh, 
I had an angina attack in 1999. They told me to ease up on the drinking. I found it easier to give up. <laughs> well, I mean, you've done pretty well to get to to 96. It doesn't <laughs> doesn't seem to have done you much harm, does it? <laughs> doesn't, does it? <laughs> Might have helped. What was the best part of your game? Were you good off the tee? Were you a good putter? Oh, it varied. We could hit a fairly long ball and that was off the tee, but I only once had um, a two. So no, no holes in one? No. The two and I along the 13th once. I played a two wood off the tee and a three iron on the fairway. It was one of our longer holes, anyway. Two inches off the line. <laughs> that was the closest I got. <laughs> you, you remember that quite clearly, do you? Yes, I was playing in a mixed foursome. <laughs> Must have been um, 50s or 60s. I was talking to veteran golfer Margaret Stevens, who's decided to give up the sport at 96. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you've got any thoughts or comments, you can contact us here at sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.